0: Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Uh, My name is Julian Schaap. I'm a cultural sociologist, primarily interested in culture and inequalities. Exactly the topic of this podcast. And today I'm talking to uh, Jeroen van der Waal and Joost Oude Groeniger, both attached to the uh, Erasmus University, Rotterdam, Joost at the Medical Center and Jeroen at the, the, what you could say is the regular university, Um, Joost. Could you uh, briefly introduce yourself?
1: Yes, of course. Uh, well, thank you for having me on uh, on this podcast. My name is Jozen Groeniger, and I am originally schooled as a sociologist. I studied in Groningen. And after my uh, studies, I went to Rotterdam to do a PhD on public health at the Erasmus Medical Center. And in, the, in my PhD, I've, my main topic was uh, socioeconomic inequalities in health. And specifically, the role of cultural capital in understanding health inequalities. Um, and in this capacity, I I kind of drove back to sociology because, of course, the whole idea of cultural capital stems from within sociology. And I connected uh, with a couple of cultural sociologists at the Erasmus University. And currently, I am working both at the Department of Public Health at the Erasmus Medical Center as well as the Department of Sociology of the Rasmus University to try and kind of combine more sociological theories on social inequality with more socio theories on health inequalities in an effort to, to study and understand the causes and consequences
0: of health inequalities. Okay, thank you. So in, in that department you also met and work with uh, Jeroen van der Waal. So Jeroen van der Waal, can you uh, introduce yourself? Yeah,
2: sure, Julian. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, in short, when I was 16 years old, I dropped out of high school. I was a sailor for 10 years until the age of 25. And from the age of 25 to the age of 30, I worked as a dock worker in the Rotterdam Harbor working shifts. And in that same period, uh, while working shifts in the Rotterdam Harbor, I also studied sociology at the Rasmus University. And that went rather well. So I was invited to do a PhD at Erasmus University at the Department of Sociology, which I did from 2005 to 2010. And uh, ever since I have been a researcher at that department currently uh, as a full professor. And the the main themes that I focus upon, I'm a sociologist of stratification. That said, the bulk of my research does not focus on how people arrive at unequal positions and how that reproduces, which most of my fellow sociologists of stratification do. Instead, I focus on the consequences of stratification. And that is in two domains. Um, uh, so the consequences of stratification in the political domain. So why do the lower and higher strata differ in the political attitudes, behaviors, preferences, etc. And more recently, but already four, five, six, seven, eight years now, I also focus on the role that stratification plays in health and health-related behaviors. So why do we observe time and again in Western societies that it is the lowest strata where most of the unhealthy repertoires can be found? How can it be explained? How can it be understood? And how is that responsible for current health issues that we face?
0: Uh, You already introduced it yourself, the topic that we're going to talk about today. The general problem, you could say. So, uh, what we're talking about today is the socioeconomic inequalities in health, in particular, whether and how this, this idea of cultural capital affects health outcomes. Uh, so, a lot of research demonstrates that there's a relationship between a person's uh, socioeconomic status and their health. So, for instance, uh, people from lower socioeconomic groups tend to have a lower life expectancy of around six years. But more alarming maybe is that people from these groups also have a severely lower disability-free life expectancy in comparison with people from higher socioeconomic background. Uh, scholars and media often relate this to questions of economic inequality. But cultural sociologists have increasingly been pointing in the direction of cultural consumption and cultural participation as crucial indicators to understand these health disparities. Joost, why is this an important topic?
1: I think there are several ways of looking at it. But for one, I think merely focusing on the kind of economic uh, disparity that may cause health inequalities, that kind of implies that if we were able to just reduce costs of healthy food products or, or physical activities or, or whatsoever, or uh, increase a level of income among citizens with a more unhealthy uh, lifestyle, that that would immediately kind of reduce these health inequalities that are so persistent in our society. And I think think that's not the case. I think that misses the aspect of culture, of this cultural capital that also impacts upon health. And um, as a result, uh, impacts on health inequalities. And kind of that points more towards the role of socialization and all these kinds of processes that, that sociologists are more familiar with. But the implication, of course, is that it is much harder to reduce this health gap between different social groups in society, uh, then this economic perspective would have it. And I think it's crucial because to some extent, that is, of course, what we're aiming to do. There are a lot of ethical and philosophical reasons to say that the, the magnitude of health and in society are unfair and unjust, and that um, it's worthwhile to try to reduce this health gap. And uh, in order to do so, we kind of need to, take multiple perspectives and at least one of them is this cultural perspective uh, that impacts on health.
0: Right uh, okay so today we are reading uh, three texts for this uh, podcast uh, two of which have been authored or co-authored by, uh, by uh, uh, Jeroen and Joost here. Uh, so the first text uh, and I will discuss these alphabetically is, a, is an article by Priya Fielding Singh Uh, from 2017, published in the journal Sociological Science and is entitled A Taste of Inequality, Food's Symbolic Value Across the Socioeconomic Spectrum. The second article we're discussing is Co-authored, but the first author is Joost Oude Groeniger and is uh, entitled How Does Cultural Capital Keep You Thin? Exploring unique aspects of cultural class that link social advantage to lower body mass index. This was published this year in the Sociology of Health and Illness journal. And the final article is also written by Joost uh, from 2017, Does Social Distinction Contribute to socioeconomic Inequalities in Diet? The Case of Superfoods Consumption, which was published in the International Journal of Behavioral Nutrition and Physical Activity. Jeroen, uh, you co-authored one of these texts, uh, but this is primarily also uh, the, the work that Joost introduced uh, in his research agenda. Rereading uh, these articles, what surprised you most uh, in these texts?
2: Well, how they are positioned in the literature. Uh, uh, that as you mentioned previously, we know for quite some time now that stratification is strongly linked to health-related behaviors and health outcomes. And uh, that in generally, hey, the lower strata have a poorer health. And uh, this is nothing new, I would say, almost. This is something that we can see for decades and even increasing in strength. Uh, that's one. Secondly, we have an idea that not merely economic aspects, as Joe previous, previously mentioned, um, is what does the trick, right? So it's not merely about uh, if we would be able to diminish uh, economic inequalities that uh, the stratified certific- the patterns in unhealthy behaviors would would disappear. So we also know that different life worlds, so to say, the lived experience that differs strongly between the the, the less and and, and the, the, the less and more educated or more generally the lower and the higher strata, that it plays a role, but systematic empirical research in how that exactly plays a role is rather scarce until today. And that at least is something that we touch upon in, the text of today, uh, also the, 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 the great article by, by Fielding Singh. And, and what strikes me most each and every time when I think about this, is why didn't we start doing this two, three decades ago already when these patterns already emerged and it was already clear that cultural capital in the broader sense or different life worlds in the broader sense play a role, but most often simply stick to, OK, the higher strata have better health. It must be because they are richer. Mm-hmm. Period.
0: Yeah, and uh, what it is for you, uh, Joost? Well, for me,
1: well, I haven't been uh, in the literature as long as, as Jeroen has. Um, but the one thing, kind of rereading all these papers, that, that I uh, kept thinking about was kind of the symbolic value that something like food consumption, for example, can have. For, from a evolutionary perspective, it's, it's, it's just you know, food consumption is merely a means to acquire energy, right, to keep our bodies working. But in kind of contemporary societies, we have incorporated uh, something as, as as basic as food consumption into a whole cultural pattern and, and a means of distinction or a means to to kind of signal to which group you belong. And and for me, it's kind of fascinating how kind of societies operate like that, and how kind of the, the, this way that we live together kind of influences all these these, from an evolutionary perspective, basic human behaviors are still so significant uh, from from a cultural perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. So for you, it's also the 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 collision maybe to between this this nature and and nurture perspective that the the, the nature perspective is more. Uh, found in, in your medical background as well whereas the sociologists come sort of barging in with their nurture perspective
1: well I think that's a very accurate way of looking at it actually especially from really within medical the medical domain it's, it's often focused on the body and, and how does a disease develop and what happens on a molecular level um, and how can we treat it with a with a pill or or some other treatment? And and from a sociological perspective, of course, it's it's much more the nurturing aspects, the socialization processes that that are kind of steering people towards a specific lifestyle. And and I think that's a fascinating uh, distinction between the two.
0: Right. Yeah, so uh, a little bit more about these uh, readings. So you may wonder why uh, did we select these uh, articles in particular, uh, not only uh, to just show all the great work that Joseph and Jeroen have been doing, but uh, pretty much more so because, uh, like Jeroen also indicated, there's really little empirical research into this topic. In this podcast, we now you know have the two authors that actually do this kind of empirical research. So... That is the reason why we find uh, the two articles that are uh, authored by Joost and colleagues uh, in there. Uh, but there are more reasons for it. So walking through the three articles, uh, we'll begin with the uh, the superfood article. This is a, a an article that has a, st- a quantitative focus in which Joost and colleagues primarily focused on the, the consumption of superfoods. So, so one kind of uh, food that... Gained some kind of symbolic value for particularly higher educated uh, people in higher educated groups that seems to have to do with inequalities in in health outcomes. So uh, and then we'll move to the uh, the second article, which which will be the uh, the taste of inequality article by uh, Fielding Singh. This is interesting not only because she basically extends the the view of food having symbolic properties that that matter to people from different socioeconomic groups, but also because this is a much more qualitative exploration. So uh, she conducted over uh, 160, I think, uh, in-depth interviews with 160 parents and adolescents and uh, all kinds of uh, observations uh, within these families so this article is not only interesting because she focuses on the symbolic value of food but also how this happens in conjunction with parents and their children, which uh, we'll see uh, is also an important root of these inequalities what like how parents teach their children to, to think about food and um, also in more implicit ways. And then the final article that's, that we'll refer to as the the thin article, uh, does, How Does Cultural Capital Keep You Thin? Uh, that's a further quantitative exploration uh, using the same GLOBE study uh, as the Superfood article in which Joost and colleagues, including Jeroen, explore a typical Bourgeoisian concepts such as refinement, uh, reflexivity, and to link these to uh, having a lower or ha- a higher body mass uh, index. So, these articles fit together well, and I think what makes it especially interesting is that they seem to capture uh, a unique moment in time when these theoretical ideas and the empirical research, both qualitative and quantitative, finally found each other and are now kind of in this uh, moment that, um, that we're actually doing the research and necessary to understand this. Okay, so let's move to this discussion. Uh, so the, the central theme that we'll focus on is how economic and cultural capital affect health disparities, particularly uh, focusing on, uh, on, on overweight or questions on obesity. First, Joost, as you said in your introduction, you have a, a medical background. Uh, how did you actually get into this field of research? Uh,
1: yeah, that's a very... Well, actually, interesting question, and I, I do have to say, I'm, I'm not technically. I don't have a medical background per se. I, I did study as a sociologist, and then had a PhD in public health, It, to some extent, lines up with the social sciences. But of course, it is definitely a different field than sociology. And the interesting thing is, if it, from the medical domain, because I did work in a in a medical center, um, is that often if you kind of ask the question. What are the large, largest causes of death, for example, in the Netherlands? And then people often would say, well, so for types of cancer, heart diseases, cardiovascular diseases. And, and I mean, to some extent, that's, of course, a very accurate answer. But there's also another way of looking at it. And behavioral um, scholars would, would perhaps be more interested in that, which is, well, maybe it is. Uh, these chronic diseases in the end but actually it is smoking and he- healthy or an unhealthy diet physical activity that are the causes of death the causes of health and that is of course also an accurate uh, depiction of reality but of course you can also step even further back and then say well there are all kinds of factors that influence these health behaviors for example, is actually is the cause that actually perhaps Education, income, or so, some other kind of poverty, or kind of these, these what we call, you usually call upstream factors of health uh, that are not very close to the outcome of health, but are actually much more upstream and farther away. And from um, a social epidemiologist, for example, where I, it's kind of the field that I did my PhD in, they are very interested in these social factors that influence health. But of course, being an epidemiologist means your starting point is health. And then you reason back. You So you reason from health towards these health behaviors and end up with perhaps income inequality or some other form of stratification. And that is interesting, but the farther back they reason, they're less sensitive they are to all the kind of complex mechanisms that may play a role. So they're very good in this health health behavior aspect, but much less about what it actually means if you're talking about a social stratification in society. And then from a sociology perspective, of course, the starting point is often, well, we have social stratification, we have a, a certain inequality in society. And what, how does that affect everything that comes after it? So it it basically reverses this whole chain of reasoning and starts with the um social stratification and i think that is kind of this very value that adds value to to what we do to kind of get a better picture of what's actually going on if we're talking about social inequalities and in health
0: so this uh this perspective basically found its way on your on your route because you were digging a little bit deeper into into how these health uh, disparities actually come up i suppose so so you you were on that same street coming from the different direction.
2: From an outsider point of view, I guess it's rather odd that a researcher like me focuses on the role that stratification plays in the domain of politics. So for questions like uh, the vote count that is currently running, right? Will it be Biden or will it be Trump? Um, and at the other hand, uh, linking stratification to um, uh, health outcomes because it's a very different domain. But from the perspective that I take, uh, it's not that odd. And let me explain that that in a few sentences. What we have been observing in the domain of politics is that, for instance, the lower strata become more and more inclined to embrace right-wing populists, right? So as now, for instance, we know that the educational gradient so when comparing the less and more educated it's one of the strongest predictors whether one embraces trump or embraces biden right and it's not because those people are poor in the sense that that they have a lack of economic means and that they uh, hope that that will be solved somehow by the republican candidate most of them know very well that the republican candidate is not the one who's going to save them from the poverty yet they are strongly inclined to embrace such a person. Why? And that has much more to do with the cultural aspects of stratification, the different life worlds that the higher and the lower strata in, the match in life worlds that people have. So you have to understand. So it's about making sense of the sense-making of the lower strata. And then the step to the field that links stratification to health outcomes is not that odd. Because here we do exactly the same. And that's also how I met Joost, right? Because I knew Joost at the Rutherford Medical Center, and he knew I knew he was studying the role that cultural capital plays in stratified patterns in health-related behaviors. But here also he came to the point, what is it, which we will discuss at length later on during this podcast, what is it exactly that makes people uh, that have a low or, or high cultural capital differ to such an extent in their health-related behaviors. So the mechanisms are not fully theorized yet, let alone uh, uh, tested. So here you see the link between those very different fields. Right? From my perspective, I do rather the same thing
0: uh, so you both immediately jump onto these uh, cultural explanations let's let's immediately turn to the two these articles so the first one we'll, we'll we'll sort of start off with is the, the superfood article of 2017 Joost, you already indicated that th- this was one of your first kind of the moments that you really started digging into these uh, these questions um, let's take a couple of steps. Back before we go into the actual consumption of superfood itself, which which maybe uh, even is not that uh, known anymore among a lot of listeners, because it's it's that fat seems to be kind of over in a, <laughs> especially focused on the quinoa and um, uh, uh, like what was it wheatgrass, goy berries, and all these kind of things. Spelt was very popular uh, at a at a particular moment in time. We'll, we'll get there, I think. A couple of steps back and just uh, first uh, explore this question what is actually this linear gradient between socioeconomic status and health outcomes and, and what kind of classic explanations have scholars given for this uh, this gradient so this this is kind of how did you find the field when you entered it with your ideas about culture so for me,
1: so the linear gradient in health, I think that is very interesting. So, for example, if you look at an indicator like education, what we see is that if, for example, just thinking about life expectancy, that every additional step up the educational ladder, so to speak, means that you have a bit uh, a higher life expectancy than one step lower. And for every step of the educational ladder, this kind of adds up in an extra additional step on the life expectancy ladder. And this work, works for income, actually, as well. And that's, of course, fascinating, which because it implies it's not just the lowest socioeconomic groups in society versus the highest socioeconomic group, but something some is happening that by every additional step on the social hierarchy, uh, you end up with a bit better health uh, and a bit higher life expectancy. Traditionally, the explanations have been uh, so, in, in the material factors, so the economic capital can even say uh, both the, the, the means of acquiring healthy foods or
0: going to um, sports facilities that, that actually cost money. So, so that would be the explanation that if you go to a supermarket now in, in most Western countries, at least, then the healthy food options are more expensive than the, the unhealthy ones, right?
1: Exactly. Well, that's often assumed, but to the extent that it is actually, actually true, it also that depends on of, of the, the country, of course. But for example, in the Netherlands, I actually doubt whether that is actually true, that there are also very inexpensive healthy foods so that's kind of the reason also why we believe this this mechanism kind of breaks down it's not enough to kind of explain this gradient in health but that's indeed the explanation and the other explanation of course is more on the cognitive level is that it's basically that you're better able to understand what is healthy and what is unhealthy if you somehow have a well if you have a higher cognitive ability which often of course those in a higher educated level have higher cognitive ability and that would somehow explain that they're that it is easier to make the healthy choice than the unhealthy choice but also in this explanation i think they underestimate the extent to which many people know the healthier option from the unhealthier option but still have valid reasons to choose the unhealthier options uh, which points towards this more cultural uh, dimension.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, if if I I, I may add, let me also stress that uh, while we start, before delving into the the so-called cultural explanations, that's certainly not to say that accounts for me, but to the best of my knowledge also accounts for Joost. That's not to say that the economic aspects of certification do not matter. They matter in various ways and very strongly so. Uh, so and not merely because of that the, the healthier option can be more expensive, which in some context, context is indeed the case. But of course all types of stress that financial hardship induces uh, can lead to all kinds of healthy unhealthy behaviors in various ways. It can lead to all kinds of mental uh, uh, problems uh, that are also then, uh, in their turn, uh, translate into unhealthy behaviors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's not something that we deny. Absolutely not. It, there are many observations, and quite strong observations, also experimental ones, uh, from which we know that it plays a crucial role. But we, as uh, a people from the Netherlands, a rather egalitarian country, are, I would argue, are, uh, in my humble opinion, well-versed to also uh, s- s- see the, the cultural aspects of, of uh, certification also playing a role. Because as, like, like Joost just mentioned, in the US, you have food deserts, not food deserts, uh, uh, the desert or something else, but food deserts, right? Places <laughs> where, the lowest, where uh, most notably lower strata live, where no healthy options are available within miles. That actually exists in the U.S. That that does not exist in the Netherlands. Secondly, a very healthy options such as fruits are, because of various reasons, uh, very well uh, uh, available at very low cost, also in places where, especially the lower strata, live in the Netherlands. So, uh, but here also we have the stratified pattern. So, the economic aspects of stratification, in short, do play a much Lesser role in a place like the Netherlands when it comes to understanding uh, strat- stratified patterns in in health-related behaviors and health outcomes than it does, for instance, in the U.S. And then the question is the million-dollar question. Today's question is: What is it? What are those so-called cultural differences between the lower and the higher strata that makes them opt in their daily lives for healthier or unhealthier options? And that's yeah. That's something that we merely started to scratch the surface of, I would say, in recent years. And that is what we will be doing uh, for decades to come eh? trying to understand that, theorize how that it can be explained, and systematically test. Uh, subsequently
0: those explanations yeah so so Joost, you at, at this point uh you're confronted with the million dollar question you found yourself in all kinds of stores surrounded by friends who were all of a sudden eating like bird seeds and all kind of things that we haven't heard before and you notice something particular is that these people tended to be primarily high educated and they also uh, would have less uh, a lower bmi Am I assuming this this uh, well, or uh, how, how does, uh, did this happen? How did you come on to the superfood topic?
1: Yeah, actually, you're painting a very accurate picture. Um, let me just first say that I, I'm very happy with the remarks Jeroen just made. and I want to emphasize that also, I totally agree that economic inequality plays a major role. It's just that it doesn't explain everything, and we need to extend our horizon to also include other factors. And we should also see if we discuss these papers that... Economic deprivation may shape kind of the the, the culture, uh, the cultural relevance um, that that we will be t- discussing. But that in a in a later stage in life, this, this 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 culture still has an influence over and above above the initial conditions that may have shaped the, the these these uh, life worlds. So I think that that's that's um, an interesting part. But I'm happy that you kind of made that point
0: yeah but but then the superfoods consumption very strongly relates to that i think because in the article you do make the argument that superfoods irrespective of whether they are in fact super or not are much more expensive so there seems to be a concrete tie between economic and cultural factors there as well
1: exactly i think in the case of superfoods um, the fact that they are expensive makes them more or less exclusive and that's why it, may, it perhaps makes them popular among the, the higher social strata. But so how I actually got to this uh, research, so I was just starting my PhD and we were interested in looking at the role of cultural capital and explaining health inequalities. And then I started just to think for myself, so what does this mean, this cultural capital? And it's often referred to as a, as a, as a way of, of using kind of habits and preferences as a way to distinguish yourself from other social groups in society. And then I was just thinking and looking around, and that's always the way that I like to approach this type of research. First, just look in your environment, look in your surroundings and see what's going on. And when I went to the local supermarket, there was this, in in, we're talking about 2013, 2014, there was this separate stand within the supermarket that had all these so-called superfoods. Quinoa, spell prodigies, goji berries, um, all these kind of very well, expensive, more or less exclusive products with an aura of health surrounding them. Even though there was and still is not any scientific evidence that it's healthier than some equivalent product, they still had this aura of healthiness, which to some extent made them, made them very Popular in a specific subgroup uh, of those that thought it can kind of give them a more distinctive lifestyle. So I often saw the more the younger, higher educated uh, individuals in in my supermarket that that were actually buying these superfoods, whereas other people would not even you know give them a, a moment of notice. And so I started to think, yeah, this is really this this may be a very good example of how this distinctive. Um, how this mechanism of social distinction may play a role in food consumption. So perhaps this makes for a nice case study to, to study. So that was kind of the the way that I thought, well, let's just go ahead and see whether this may have some value for me to study. And actually it ended up being exactly that.
0: Right. So so the way I imagine distinction often uh, in the, the, the classic Bourgeoisian way is that you kind of show... To other people that you 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 can be distinguished from them because you have better taste or a better understanding of of uh, cultural life, so to say, so and that you can kind of flaunt with this knowledge. Um, so, for instance, you can do this with clothing, right? That you that you buy the the clothing that is seen to be uh, uh, more high status than 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 other kind of clothing, uh, the newest. Uh, 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 high top brand shoes uh, in opposition to uh, very cheap shoes that you bought at your local market or whatever. And that signals uh, a, a kind of distinction being supposedly better uh, than others. Uh, how would this then work for food? So this is not something that maybe you show all the time what you're eating, right?
1: Right. How does this work for food? So yeah, that's that's a very tricky question. And let me just first mention that i'm not a producing expert the way that you or you are uh, but for me i mean of course clothing signals to everyone that's that, that 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 you meet you know what kind of lifestyle you adhere to but for foods it may not be visible for everyone but still well especially in these days you can share it on social media for example um you, of course, if you're eating with friends, you signal to your friends that, that you have the well, correct lifestyle, in quotes, uh, that perhaps they also believe to be the, the, the right way of, of, of consuming uh, foods. So I think it perhaps it, it's not as obvious as maybe clothing, but I think that the, the basic mechanism to some extent is still there, but it may be just visible in different types of ways.
2: Yeah, if if, if I may add, uh, the thing that that also needs somehow to be taken into account and makes the the pattern somewhat more puzzling than perhaps at at first sight, Uh, as you just noted, uh, Julian, the the, the role of of, of superiority signaling Uh, and and, and distinction, Um, and it has most certainly some aspects that are well thought through, so to say, so what? do i need to do eh, as to single signal my superiority that will happen absolutely so but one of the strong very strong aspects of buddhiogen thinking here of course is that it well, simply because you are socialized in in the higher strata milieu that you start to habitually embrace certain aspects of life certain taste etc etc which feel natural to you that's simply what you do right and uh, uh, that when it comes to all kinds of uh, um, uh, behaviors, when it comes to clothing, when it comes to health, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, then the obvious thing is simply that which your parents did, the friends of your parents, which are also then most often highly educated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. While those so-called superfoods, um, uh, and as Julian just stated, it's something that's it was a fad, and now it's less less obvious, right? But then the question becomes how how do those novel things, so to say, have become entwined with such a higher strata habitus and way of life, right? Because it's not something that you've learned uh, specifically. Perhaps generally, it has some aspects, Those those superfoods, which resonate with what you're used to in the higher strata, but in itself, goji beans, well, it's not my expertise. They probably did exist 30 years ago, but nobody <laughs> knew they did exist, right? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's also that adds to the to the to the to the to the empirical question that Joost focused upon. Okay, how does this work,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, and and maybe that that also is a nice bridge to the uh, the, the the taste article by Pre uh, Priya Fielding Singh because um she actually uh, asks similar questions and but then particularly focuses on this socialization process so the the, the relationship between parents and their adolescent kids and uh, the the article the, or the, this article sketches this really I think uh, uh, interesting picture where you see this, this these young adolescents who basically want to uh, ignore or deny all the good advice of their parents in terms of uh, health uh, uh, health eating healthy food uh, and that these parents depending on their socioeconomic status have different strategies in in dealing uh, with this, and I think one of the, the the most important findings in the beginning of this article is that she immediately states and this relates to what Joe said before about this more cognitive uh, explanation for um, uh, health outcomes is that they all people that she interviewed and per, uh, observed all understand and know what healthy and unhealthy food is they, they do this in a very similar way so it's not like that the differences between these groups are that they have different ideas about what is healthy and what is uh, unhealthy and 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 then this um, distinction explanation starts kicking into her uh, article so Jeroen, maybe continuing on what you just said. So, what is the role of parenting uh, in, in 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 these in these questions? So, what what happens uh, uh, across these different strata um, that causes these differences in later life as well?
2: I think it's a great article, and and, uh, one of the reasons is uh, that it it also resonates with with how I, as a researcher, look at the world, and I've previously mentioned this already, because for me as well, I'm born and raised in a working-class environment, so practically until the age of 30, I hardly met anyone who attained more than high school. So it's a very different world than the average academic lives in. And so if you want to understand how the lower strata think and behave, you need to make sense of how they make sense of the world. And that's what Fielding uh, Singh does in a a marvelous way. Uh, And of course, I was born and raised in the Netherlands, so uh, financial hardship is much less strong in the lower strata than the financial hardship that you meet in this this article. That said, but still, you have to understand how they actually look at the world, how they deal on a daily basis with their reality, and then come up with strategies to, well, raise their kids, etc., etc. And then here you see a very interesting interplay between financial hardship uh, on the one hand, and also the things that you want to learn your children, that as you just mentioned, it's very different than culture of poverty, uh, like explanations that became popular decades ago with often quite strong...
0: Okay, can, you, can you explain that explanation? So, so in the end of the article, Fielding Singh mentions that this this culture of poverty explanation by Lewis, I think from the 1960s, that it, that it isn't particularly valid anymore. What is this explanation?
2: Well, in, in a nutshell, it is that when you live in poverty and have been living in poverty for decades and also for generations... Uh, you more and more shift away from a dominant, legitimate society, right? And that consequently, as a, a, a self-reproducing um, type of cultures, and so, so ways of looking at the world and shared meaning start to exist, start to exist in those lower strata that are far apart and further, further apart from dominant, from middle-class society. And one of the implications of the thinking is well that the attitudes that you are raised into then also are very different than the attitudes that you are raised to, uh, raised into in 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 the middle class and the upper strata. But that's what 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 Fielding Singh uh, uh, actually shows is that when it comes to embracing what's good for your children, what's healthy food. It, it, is it important to, to raise your children uh, with awareness of healthy foods? Yes, it is. Everyone embrace, embraces this and everyone underscores the importance and everyone tries to do so uh, given their situation. And there the differences start to arise. And, 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 and in, this, in this article, what you then see, the higher strata uh, are able to give their children practically everything they want And all the aspects of daily life, sports activities, leisure activities, clothing, and so on and so forth, so scarcity, hardly exists. But when it comes to one specific request of their adolescents, of their children, junk food and all the unhealthy options, there the parents can say, no, that's what we do not do, that's unhealthy, that's not good for you. And in the process, uh, those train those children in a way of of, of dealing with foods that also trains, strain uh, the, the importance of of, of uh, uh, denying yourself gratification instantly, etc. That's something that we will also touch upon in a later reading. While when you are born and raised in those lower strata, especially with the financial hardship that the, these people face, right? That's real financial hardship. And then one of the few things of the request of the treats that you can actually give your kids is something like unhealthy foods right there is a scarcity of leisure activities there is a scarcity of of nice clothing etc all the things that the children are the most important thing to you in the world right right and and but that there is a particular aspect of life that's in food especially the, the readily available very cheap junk food such as candy bars etc well if a child wants that that's at least something I can give her, right?
0: So here again, you see this this conflation of an economic and an cultural uh, mechanism working in conjunction.
2: Yeah, but the interesting thing is, it's more than scarcity, because as those parents also readily admit to the researcher, and that's interesting... Uh, from an analytical point of view, I try trying to not moralize. It's not about morality here, but it's about analytically. It's about understanding why people born and raised in different strata do the things they do. And there the thing pops up that in certain instances, when those lower strata parents give their children a treat, it's also sometimes possible that cost considerations are not taken into account, that the more... The the, the, the the more expensive treat so to say is then the option so it's not merely no that's the most uh, cheap thing so that's what you'll get no but all those domains of social life that you would like to give your child something uh, that in the domain of food that something can sometimes be quite readily available much easier than fancy clothing a fancy sports club and
0: so on and so forth yeah yeah I, I think we should actually make the bridge that you you were referring to and jump to the the third the thin article uh, uh as well because indeed um uh, these bourgeoisian ideas uh, that people in higher social strata tend to have more of a sense of refinement of asceticism diver- focus on diversity ref- reflexivity that all very much relate to having a, a kind of self-control um, uh sort of delayed gratification um are all tied to what's happening there in this uh, in this parenting uh, process so so uh Joost, uh how did this go uh, this this research process when you uh when you thought okay now we're going to kind of deductively try and understand uh how this works
1: well so the, the previous paper about superfoods we the way we we kind of try to analytically tackle this this research question was to to look at standard culture capital indicators, highbrow culture capital like visiting museum, museum, opera, all these kind of highbrow uh, culture activities, and then we kind of correlated these indicators of culture of highbrow culture capital with, for example, superfoods. But we also did the same for more general fruit and vegetable consumption and physical activity, etc. And um, what we saw is that there was a strong correlation between these two, even when taking income, education and all kinds of socioeconomic indicators into account. But still, kind of the way that that, that works is that you have this correlation between um, culture capital and a healthy food uh, or a healthy uh, health behavior. But and, and the way we interpret that is that it reflects kind of cultural meanings and tastes that vary across socioeconomic groups. But that doesn't really tell us how does that now actually work? How can we more analytically tease apart the actual mechanism and get a sense of how this works? And so that what brings us to this paper is um, where we more thought about, okay, so what are the actual theoretical mechanisms that are often assumed that make those uh, raised in a higher social strata to behave more healthily? And often you see that it refers to something as like refinement as uh, so f- uh, valuing form and appearance over kind of function and substance
0: but also the so for refinement for for i can imagine like in in the arts world for instance that that you look at a chair like a rietveld chair and then you completely if if you're a very uh if you're a person in that 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 feels or very refined then you're okay with saying that the chair doesn't sit well it's just a very beautiful chair, right? And and that uh, people who are rather unrefined would say, well, if the chair doesn't sit well, then it's not a good chair and you should build something different, right? How, how, so for food, you could also argue in the same way?
1: Well, to some extent, I think it can be translated to, for instance, foods. Uh, so, for example, more refined food, if you go to this very fancy restaurant, you get this this incredibly tiny piece of... Well, whatever it is on your plate, and it looks very nice, and it has all these very, very tiny elements and all these, you know, great kind of skills from the chef. Um, but in the end, it's just very small, tiny, tiny meal, right? Uh, compared to the, the just valuing a big plate of food that gives you a lot of nourishment. Um, so that's kind of the way that this may translate to the, the situation of food and um, the same may even go a uh, body uh, image that kind of was, was also a topic of of one of the previous podcasts that uh, more this cultivate, cultivation of thinness is something that is also perhaps acquired in in, in socialization in higher social strata because of this this more relative refinement um that you see there
0: yeah so refinement of the body but also refinement of what you eat and what you uh, culturally consume
1: exactly exactly um, so that was kind of the way that we kind of translated kind of the, these original notions of what are these preferences within the higher social strata uh, that we often see when we're talking about you know cultural activities like you mentioned um, but that may also translate to more this domain of health behavior and so refinement was one of the examples the same we had is this idea of asceticism, kind of the self-imposed constraints, which actually we refer to in this uh, Filming Sing paper, which greatly showed that in, in the higher strata, um, parents use foods as a way to impose uh, constraints and, and teach kind of control within their, in the children. Uh, and another one is kind of more this idea of reflexivity, which I think is, is often mentioned in the cultural sociology domain, Kind of this way that, that if you, well, for instance, socialized in higher, edu- higher education, that you, you you constantly kind of reflect upon your own um, situation and everything you're doing and have this internal dialogue. And this may also play a part in health behavior. If you're constantly thinking about, do I make the right choices with what I eat, with how I exercise, et cetera, et cetera, you're constantly thinking about your own uh, body weight um, healthiness and, and that may actually especially in, in kind of the contemporary society which is you were surrounded by unhealthy options right um, and but then it's if you have kind of these these more dispositions that acquired via socialization in this higher social strata this may protect you to some extent about all these temptations in this um in a contemporary society where we're unhealthy, uh, the unhealthy option is often the healthy, uh, sorry, the easy option.
2: Yeah, but but indeed, I would like to add here that our, our, uh, that's a cross link eh, when we come to the uh, the related to the fielding sing reading. Eh, so so when middle class parents try to teach their children self-restraint etc, etc, they can easily do so in the domain of foods, right? But also, please take note, that's Interesting here, it's not to say that the healthier options are always the options embraced by the higher strata. And because decades ago, the more unhealthier options more often could be found, eh? copious meals, smoking cigars, and the uh, whole idea of uh, uh, going from one place to another, so going from A to B uh, from A to B, walking instead of by some kind of motorized aid was something because it's vulgar, right? Yeah, well, it's now completely inversed. so we need to be aware here also that, yes, we see those dispositions being cultivated in the upper strata, but it's not because they are superior in themselves. It's simply something that somehow, uh, that's a difficult question to to answer, but still that somehow became entwined with the higher strata way of life. And by now is very effective when we all need to navigate so-called obesogenic situations. So, uh, that is a thing I would like to stress here, and also that it also resonates here and there with more individualistic explanations, which can be found in economics and in psychology. Yeah, those dispositions are so, the dispositions that Joost just mentioned, sometimes resonate quite strongly with dispositions that are uh, theorized in that field. For instance, the notion of reflexi- reflexivity has some resonance, I would say, with the whole idea of self-monitoring and health, right? But the focus in those fields is more often that those are individual characteristics, uh, which you do have or do not have um, to a more or less extent. But the strength here, of course, is that they result from socialization in the higher or lower strata. Right? So it's a truly sociological explanation. And because of those, because of that socialization, it's not something that you easily alter or simply choose, right? And this also leads to uh, options, uh, the things that you opt for all through your life, right? And that's something that also was in the in the Fielding Singh notion uh, when she stressed. And it's interesting also because that's also the implication I would say of the article that we are that we are discussing now. If you give people that have been living for decades. Uh, uh, in financial strain if you add, a, add, add to their financial means huh, that's not to say that they then will that they then in an instance will be starting to start doing the healthier options no 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 what's more obvious then if you understand this theorizing and its implications and there's also the implications of being socialized in the lower of higher strata that they then so when you add to their financial means we'll start opting more often for the unhealthier options mm-hmm. because they got more financial means to do so right and that's the obvious thing to do because that is what you have been doing for decades and that is what you have been that what your parents have been have been doing for decades and that's something that you internalize as well the obvious way of doing
1: right yeah i think that's that's a great that's a great point and i think also this idea of it used to be that eating more uh, was a sign of being in the higher social strata and now it's eating less or eating more healthy and being thinner and i think it's very interesting to kind of try to to theorize how how has this uh come this uh, how, how did that became the situation that we currently live in uh for example a century ago, luxury goods were a way to kind of distinguish yourself and show uh, your your higher social strata uh, position. Um, but in these days, uh, with also perhaps due to economic prosperity, it's easier for more for a larger group of people to acquire more luxury goods, um, and so this may perhaps be less ideal to signal your your higher social position in society, as well as currently, of course, this obesogenic environment that Rune already mentioned that, that constantly tempts you to be sedentary, to eat unhealthy. This kind of gives you more lean way if you have this this luxury position of, of being able to constantly think about this or constantly be... be um you yeah, being involved with what, what you're eating it's easier to signal a, a specific position by behavior by using, using these health behaviors because it's so easy to fall in a more unhealthy life pattern mm-hmm. so I, th- I i don't have the actual answer but i always think this is a very interesting question how kind of how did we get to this point yeah
2: an additional thing to stress here uh, i would say to, to, to fully grasp the the, the role of of milieu-specific socialization, so being socialized in the lower or higher strata and the role that cultural capital plays, or the, uh, subsequently in all kinds of health-related issues, is that in case that you thus, because of milieu-specific socialization, start to to cultivate those dispositions, uh, it's not that those dispositions, by definition, uh, lead to the healthier option. As I just mentioned, there's a good example, I would say. The aestheticization of thinness, so in those upper strata, uh, brings with it all kinds of other health problems, right? The whole thing of anorexia, for instance, to the best of my knowledge, it's unhealthy. And to the best of my knowledge, that's something that's most often found among young women in the upper strata, right? So here you see it's not the higher strata do the good things because they understand more. No. No. There's a some, some way of life cultivated in the higher strata, which has consequences also in the health domain in obesogenic societies like we live in it most often leads to the healthier options. But that's not to say that, by definition, it always leads to healthier options, right? The the, the case of anorexia is a case in point.
0: Yeah. Uh, One thing that I want to know, and this is something that you also uh, said in the beginning, uh, Jeroen, about this million-dollar question, um, is that actually Pierre Bourdieu, the famous uh, cultural sociologist, uh, in, in, in most of the articles, actually is already cited saying a lot of things about food in relation to inequality and particularly these cultural explanations. So do you have any uh, idea why uh, we were so late to this game? Usually, you know, uh, everyone says, oh, there's too much Bujeu, everyone uses Bujeu, but apparently in this particular field, uh, uh, we've missed Bujeu for quite a while and only uh, finding him now. And any idea why it took so long?
2: Well. I would say on the one hand Bourdieu and Bourdieusian thinking was always present also in this line of research, but it's the way that we are informed by Bourdieu and the way that we do research diverges somewhat, somewhat than the way the his master's voice, right? Uh, for instance, not only analytically, but also empirically dissecting economic capital and cultural capital, and that they can play a role independent from one another uh, and that they can play a role uh, in addition to other explanations. So what we actually do is what I sometimes refer to as multivariate bourgeoisianism, right, while, while the, those that do hardcore bourgeoisian research are more strongly linked to his master's voice. Uh, well, they, they, they do not do that in that way. They, they, they see the relationship between certification and, and, and health related issues. And then subsequently, theorize or interpret this in a bourgeoisian way, while what we do we see this pattern and subsequently try to explain it with ideas uh, uh, that are quite often informed by Bourdieu, but also sometimes informed by others, by others so that's a thing I would like to stress, so it's, it's not that bourgeois was always uh, uh, was, he has been present I would say in bourgeoisian thinking and that perhaps is what you just referred to uh, uh, there's too much bourgeois in, the, in those fields. I can, uh, well, I'm very fond of his theorizing. Yeah. I'm somewhat less fond of the way he did, uh, performed uh, empirical research. I'm more fond of the way we uh, perform empirical research. But I think it's a great combination.
0: Yeah, but and I think we also made large steps, uh, particularly in, in how Bujeu understood uh, 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 cultural consumption among lower strata. I remember that he wrote about this, this uh, a taste of necessity, which seems very strongly related to economic uh, reasons only, and and was and, and is much more nuanced now in these articles that you uh, uh, that we've discussed here.
2: Yeah, and an additional thing is that what we simply, are, uh, in my humble opinion, improve upon Bourdieu's thinking. That in Bourdieu's thinking, well, please note, Bourdieu's thinking by Bourdieu himself was most notably performed on data collected in the nineteen fifties and sixties in. In France so that's before the counterculture kicked in in the end of the 1960s right we live in a completely different world now and for instance one crucial notion in his thinking is the notion of docility the lower strata are docile eh? so they not only see that the higher strata are different but they also know that it is superior while I would say Uh, more and more empirical uh, evidence starts to build up also in the field of of, of health-related issues uh, that that for a part of the lower strata does not work that way, that are most certainly not not docile. Uh, So notions of anti-paternalism, for instance, when we focus on all kinds of uh, uh, information campaigns on healthy healthy living, etc. you see that part of the lower strata by now, uh, pardon my French, give the upper strata the finger. So that's something else that being docile.
0: Yeah. So I think this was all really interesting, and 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 hopefully listeners now have a much better understanding of the role that the culture plays uh, in uh, in in conjunction with economic and, and social uh, cognitive explanations for these inequalities. Of course, the question now, the new million dollar question you could say, or the extended million dollar question is where do we go from here? So are there any unsolved issues, things to study uh, or consider for you as researchers um, uh, uh, that, that you think uh, we should go go in that direction of?
2: There's at least one thing that we are currently also working on, and that is the notion that we touched upon a few times: milieu-specific socialization. So, uh, are your preferences uh, indeed ingrained, hardwired, so to say, uh, in the brain because of milieu-specific socialization? Because you are born and raised in the higher or lower strata,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's uh, very hard to pinpoint empirically by standard means that we apply in sociology so surveys etc etc also Mm -hmm. ethnographic research which is uh, very good in revealing uh, various patterns and repertoires etc but in the end the question do, do people actually demonstrate a certain repertoire because it is ingrained because of the socialization is something yeah that's hard to do so by means of those type of research and that's something that that we need to Focus on in the future. And that's what we are actually doing by combining uh, um, uh, research methods from sociology, such as surveys with ones from psychology such, such as implicit association tests.
0: So, and, and I know that uh, Joost, you, you because of uh, you also your work in kind of more the medical sector, you're much more used than sociologists to think about policy implications or uh, interventions, uh, as they're often called in, in your, uh, your particular field. So, so what about the real life or policy implications? What, what can and should be done about this? So I do think that you know improving population health, decreasing
1: health inequalities, should be something that we should strive uh, towards. But how can we actually do so? I think there are at least perhaps two takeaways that that you can get from this uh, discussion we had today. First is that it seems that you know socialization is is key. So to some extent. Um, well intervening the word that you used early in life is probably something that 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 may have the largest benefit but of course it's also crucial to take into account that this should also be within kind of the the life worlds of the the lower social strata so if you want to intervene if you want to to have some policy or to change something. Just make sure that the perspective of those groups that you're targeting are also taken into account and their life wills and opinions and, and perspectives. And I think this is a crucial thing that, that kind of sociology, sociological thinking reminds us about. And that's not always completely uh, incorporated in the public health policies that we currently take. Mm-hmm. And a, a a second implication uh, and a kind of also relates to to we all to the the, the individualistic perspective that we usually uh, take that somehow um, if we just you know give information or or do something target the individual you know health would improve and I think here we we really need to take a different notion and for example see well what if we instead of targeting the consumer target Uh, The producer, so the production side of things, if you restrict the amount of salt, fat, sugar, or whatever in products that are actually allowed, then you could uh, have significant value.
0: So that would be intervening in the obesogenic environment, basically, reducing that environment.
1: Exactly, but in such a way that it doesn't feel like a punishment. Um, For instance, if you just increase tax on on unhealthy products, it's just punishing punishment. And if there is not also some healthier product that, that is actually getting cheaper or something, it just feels like you're, again, punishing specific groups, basically. Um, so this may get this mm-hmm. kind of elitist notion. If you just target production, I think you have a better chance to have a larger health gain without the resentment of the population.
2: Yeah, I, I may add some more general re- remarks at the end when it comes to the the challenge that that we we face is that if you want to understand why the people in the lower strata do what they do think what they think uh, you have to make sense of their sense making as for instance fielding singh in the reading of today brilliantly did and that does account that researchers need to do this and of course there is quite some qualitative research of that type so that can also be applied here to to these research problems but also in all kinds of governmental and semi-governmental and health institutions that are somehow involved in promoting healthier options, in in promoting health generally, and battling health inequalities, uh, that all the things that they do need to be informed by insights, from the type of research like fielding Singh applied, right? From research that makes sense of the sense-making of the lower strata. Yeah. Otherwise, all of those uh, initiatives, and that's a billion-dollar industry, right, mm-hmm. are often in vain and sometimes even, ironically, increase inequalities in health instead
0: of battle. Yeah. So indeed, and I think like researching with an open mind is what we highly recommend uh, all listeners of this podcast. Uh, um, uh, so after listening to this podcast, you may want to discuss this material further. And 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 one thing that we came up with is that uh, you could look up data on health inequalities in your your country of origin. Origin often these data are, are uh, well available uh, online also for like local municipalities for instance and based on this we suggest that uh, the following discussion questions uh, may be helpful in discussing with your group uh, if you are in a group so for instance which social mechanisms explain why people from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds have worse health than people from more advantaged backgrounds so to what extent can these mechanisms be differentiated in terms of social economic and cultural causes So really trying to differentiate those three uh, specific causes then second uh, which mechanisms that are consequential for health can you think of which are not or do not some to be seem to be related to differences in socioeconomic status so why are they unrelated do you think and then finally uh, in an extension of what Jeroen and Joost just said what kind of interventions can you think of that may decrease these socioeconomic economic inequalities in health so not maybe particularly focusing on individualistic explanations but on uh, larger interventions in society and how then would these interventions uh, take place in practice so that's what we would like to leave you with Uh, uh, my name was Julian Schaap and you heard Joost Oude Groeniger and Jeroen van der Waal uh, who, who really try to uh, uh, show us, demonstrate uh, the, the the importance of taking this cultural perspective, particularly the meaning-making perspective of what people do in their everyday lives, to take that seriously in trying to understand these these health outcomes, uh, particularly also focusing on the socialization process and that economic, cognitive, social factors are important, but are definitely not the only explanation uh, in, in explaining these kind of health inequalities qualities um so before we end first i'll start with you uh uh yoast uh, what can't you let go of uh, uh, regarding this week's uh, podcast
1: well for me the, the great thing about the stuff that we talked about today it's that it's really fun to think about you know all the different ways in in how people make sense of their own world and and how that ultimately impacts a range of outcomes, which in this case, we talked about health behaviors and health, but of course that that goes way beyond that. And it's always perhaps easier to just take the most obvious route. So if you have a lower income, you have worse health. So we need to raise income, right? That's the straightforward answer. But often it's much more complex and it's actually much more fun to think about this complexity and to see how this lines up with the way that people live in their specific sociocultural environment. And and so I would just, my, my takeaway here is it's so much fun to imagine how all these, these elements work and how all this interest, intricate social interactions kind of add up to some large, in this case, um, societal problem of health inequalities
0: yeah the fun of digging deeper so uh jeroen what will keep you uh, awake tonight except for your kids <laughs> um,
2: um but, but um adding to what joe's just mentioned and it, 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 firstly stressing and this is gonna this is gonna sound rather self-interested i love being a researcher and and here because so much is not Fully clear yet. So, so yes, we know that health-related behaviors and health outcomes are strongly stratified, and we know that generally the culture plays a role, and more specifically, cultural capital or status differences play a role. But how that exactly comes about? Well, that's work for, and I'm not exaggerating exaggerating here. Uh, that's work for for dozens of researchers for decades to come. And I'm part of that, that team, and I love doing so. So so that's great for me, right? <laughs> I, I enjoy this really on a day by day basis, even when I hardly sleep because indeed my kids tend to keep me awake at night. But that said, that said, in doing so, and in vigorously, and doing so, and in doing so with an open mind, I'm convinced that we can come up with very very relevant research insights that somehow can be used in all those initiatives that aim to decrease health inequalities and that aim in increasing population health and that aim in, in improving the life of the lower strata. If only those involved in those initiatives take the sense-making of the people of the lower strata into account.
0: Thank you very much uh, for this Joost and uh, Jeroen and I, I wish you all the best on your research endeavors in the coming decades.